over that first two years of overstory, most important then is learning, right? People always think you have product market fit early, but it takes a while to get there. And I think it was a lot of experimentation, trying new type of customers, learning from customers. And at a certain point, we just got a strong pull from these electric utilities. The more we learned about it, they're causing massive fires in California back then and also here in Southern Europe. The more we felt, oh, the tech that we actually already have would be super valuable for them and they're willing to pay a premium for it. My guest today is Indra Denbakar. He's the CEO and co-founder of a company called Overstory, which uses satellite imagery to monitor vegetation around electric power lines. In some of the worst cases, if a branch or a tree falls on a power line, that can lead to some pretty dramatic wildfire and loss in forests. So Overstory works with those companies and provides them with information at a really large scale about the state of vegetation around their power lines. A pretty important note before we get started, Indra is actually my boss. I work, when I'm not doing this podcast, at Overstory as a geospatial data scientist. I do want you to know that this podcast is my work. It's what I do when I'm not at Overstory, and these things have nothing in common, except when I do have someone on the podcast like Indra to talk about that work. But I think it's still important for you to know, and you can make up your mind about what you think about the conversation. But I just had Indra as I would have any other guests. Before we get started, I want to thank the sponsor of this episode. Um, it's again sponsored by Element84. They've been the first sponsor and they're continuing to support me in this work. So I want to say a big thank you to them. Element84 is a geospatial software engineering company that focuses on big data problems. One of the examples of what they've done is take the Sentinel-2 optical imagery and put it on AWS, Amazon Web Services, open data program so that it's a lot easier to access. I've actually had Dan Pallon, their CEO, on the podcast to talk about how him and his wife co-founded the company and how they're thinking about it. I'll have links to that in the show notes so you can go listen to that and check them out. With all of that said, here's my conversation with Indra Denbacher. Thanks for coming here. Thanks yeah, for thank doing you. this with me. Thank you for having me over. Excited to be on the, this side of the table with you. <laughs> Great. Um, I don't know if you know, I like starting these conversations the, the same way every single time. I like asking people how they would describe themselves. And so I'm quite curious to know how would you describe yourself? Yeah, interesting. Um, I would say data scientist. I'm a data scientist by heart. With a, on a mission to help solve the climate crisis. That's uh, how I would describe myself. So can you expand a little bit on that? Uh, what you're not really doing the data science right now. Your your that role has changed, for example, but let's step back a little bit. You still see yourself as that as like a data scientist with uh, with a mission on, on climate change. Yeah, yeah, I would say like, okay. you know better than I, that I'm not doing the day-to-day <laughs> no, day hands-on work. But yeah, I think that's what I, deep in my heart, still right. am. And that's how I look at the world or do make decisions or do stuff. So I think that's large part of my life. And I occasionally do some small things with data science, but it's not my core job anymore. But that, that's how I approach stuff. And I think that's part big part of, of our team and of our uh, approach as well. So yeah. I think that's still sort of on the background describes myself. 
how does that still like you said it it still is how you you are at heart and how you make decision can you expand a little bit on that like how does it help you make decision like having that data science background we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more but let's let's dig into that because right now you're so you're for a bit of context you're uh the ceo of overstory you're also my boss <laughs> <laughs> small disclaimer <laughs> small disclaimer um so but you're a data scientist at heart how does that help you make decisions in your role as a ceo today yeah and <clears throat> like i think i always like to make data driven decisions but as you also know data science is also partly an art right you n yeah. never know you n not always have i think the full underlying data to make decisions and i think that's partly also what's part of building a company like you you get a lot of information a lot of opinions a lot of data points it won't be perfect and still you have to make a decision for what's next or a decision of what you are going to do or what not so i think that is very related in terms of how you build a company how do you filter noisy data how do you know it's noisy it's quite similar there's lots of similarities in in that sense and uh, not everyone approach i think approaches building a company the same way but i think i like to approach it like that and uh, also, because I was a data scientist, I think that is more natural to me to think like that, I guess. Right. So another thing I find quite interesting is hearing, because we have a pretty diverse team uh, at Overstory. There's people who are very technical, some people who aren't. One thing I, like, that I find quite interesting is asking all of these different people how they describe the company. Hmm. Because everybody sees a different side of it and sees a different value in it. How do you describe Overstory? How do you describe what the company does? Hmm, good. That's an interesting question, indeed, and probably good for you to answer as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think we're really uh, a climate-driven, mission-driven team that really wants to contribute uh, to the climate crisis. And I think that's what, like some more than others, obviously, but I think that's what motivate us all to go to work again and build the products that we built and have an impact on our customers, on the planet uh, and on climate. Uh, and for that, I think that's probably where my data science background comes from. I think what we all see is that to improve all the decision making around forest trees, we need to measure what's there, what is changing. And I think that's the role that Overstory plays and will play in the future as well. Like. How can we create more transparency in the world around forests, trees, uh, and different ecosystems? And like a large part of what we do is the technology, but te I, I always see like tech is, is a means, right? Like satellite images are a means, machine learning is a means. Uh, so I intentionally leave it a little bit out of this description because I think right. like maybe in the future we'll use other sensors or maybe we'll use other techniques. I, I would be fine with that. I mean, like, I strongly believe that these are technologies that will have a long-standing impact. But I think if I describe Overstory, it's more about what we do or what we're trying to achieve than how we do it, I guess. So it's about, so the climate is, the climate impact is at the center of that. And then the angle we're taking is on the vegetation side. Do you see that changing as well? Or do you see, because you said on the, on the tools that we use, like satellite imagery, and we'll get to that a bit later, you see that potentially changing down the line. Do you see the focus on vegetation changing as well? Or how are you thinking about it? Yeah, I think <clears throat> data is at the center of it. And data right. about vegetation is key for us now. But I think long term, 
like it's an ecosystem, right? I don't think we can see vegetation separate from water or from weather or from other, uh, from soil. So I think there will be some consolidation and we'll play our part in that as well. But I think, especially now that <clears throat> this technology is really new, or at least when how it's coming together with ML plus satellite imagery, I think that focus is really important to build something valuable and actionable for for our customers. So I think that's why vegetation is at the core. I think it will definitely be at the core for longer. But you can, you can already see now like vegetation is at the core, but it has applications in wildfires, in, in forest management, in different aspects. So, uh, but I think vegetation is definitely at the core now and it will change a little bit, but it will be a large part of what we focus on, I think, for the, for the near future. Can we, uh, can you tell me a little bit the story of Overstory? Like, how did you go from you're a data scientist to, okay, now we have a climate company that's <laughs> focused on vegetation and then like why satellite imagery? Can, can we go back to like the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that made, that made me think of like, why, why still a data scientist? Like two years ago, I was still like, it, yeah. it went so fast still and can imagine going back in time, but I think. Everything happened really fast, but I was I was a data scientist, mainly working in advertising technology before. So lots of data, uh, learned a lot, saw a lot of beautiful things that we were building as a team. And I think that's where I also learned like, wow, you can really have a big impact with a small team if you are focused and build the right stuff. Uh, but at a certain point I was like, okay, what, what else do I want to do with the skills that I have? Right? Like, do I want to sell more ads to people for the rest of my life or is there something more? And I traveled a lot, my mother's from Indonesia, so it's a lot of beautiful places, but also things that weren't going well with our forest and trees. And it was not one moment, but I think over time I realized, oh, and climate was more of a topic uh, over time. So I was like, okay, I really want to devote the rest of my career or time also on climate. And I'm not sure if it was always the idea to start my own company. I think that grew over time and in hindsight, it made a lot of sense. But I think at that moment, it's not something that I had in mind, but eventually via a, a machine learning competition on Kaggle from uh, from Planet to detect deforestation in the Amazon rainforest with their satellite images where we did really well. Uh, that's when <clears throat> me and my co-founder and partner, Anik, started discussing, wow, this is really like, I didn't have any formal background in satellite imagery or remote sensing, not in forestry as well, but we ended up, I think, fifth out of 1,000 teams. So I was like, okay, there are some skills that I can use that is apparently valuable for a company like Planet, which I thought back then and still think is a cool company. So I thought like, okay, what can I, what can we do more with this, with this combination of satellite images and machine learning to look at forest and trees. And yeah, I think we just decided to, to found the company and one thing led to the other. How do you go from Kaggle to starting a company? <laughs> yeah, that sounds because... like a small, a small step, but it's. Yeah, uh... because one of the common, um, so Kaggle is this, um, platform, like probably the biggest competition platform for machine learning still today. But one of the common criticism of like what happens on Kaggle is that it's a playground where the data has been pre-processed a lot and there's a very, even which metric to use has been defined um, and there's a clear uh, leaderboard. <laughs> so how do you go from, okay, we have some pretty cool tech that can work uh, which is a, a pretty good feat still, like making it fifth to a Kaggle competition is not yeah. easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you go from that to, okay, now we're going to 
enter a bit more the the real world i put big quotes because yeah I, no i understand and also understand where that criticism come from so i still think like there's so much you can learn of by just doing that right like it's easy if you as an outsider to criticize what you learn on kaggle but i think people really underestimate yeah. what you learn there and how messy the data sometimes is and yeah i think there's just a lot to learn there but i think that that other part I learned more on the job in that startup that I worked before that and like how to like you could, I, what I really learned there is that you can build really cool tech with a small team very scalable but how to bring that to the customer I think right. that that part I already had in my mind or at least not fully in my mind but I knew like that part is as, as important as the tech itself so I was I was not like a techie that knows like oh you can just build cool tech and then you will be successful I think I always knew like there will be a lot of hard work next to the tech, a lot of knowledge that I necessarily don't have maybe <clears throat> to execute on. And I think that's where Anik played a huge role in maybe making the business cases, understanding what the type of customers were early on as well. So I think that was also a good good combination of me being very technical, she very business driven and, and um, business case driven. And yeah, we just started to have a lot of conversations. I think after that uh, Kaggle competition, just speaking with people, what are you missing? Like, what do you want to know about forest and trees? Oh, there's global forest watch, but why aren't you using it? Or what, what is missing from there? And I think we learned a lot in a small amount of time that we got even more enthusiastic, spent more time and just decided to, to start a company. And I think that's part of being an entrepreneur as well. I think you need to jump in. You don't need, you don't know all the answers, but sometimes right. you need to be naive and just, just do it. And that's, how you learn along the way, you will make a lot of mistakes, which is fine if you, as long as you learn from it. Uh, but I think that just doing it, I think that was crucial for us as well. And yeah, there were moments that we almost didn't make it in that first year, but I think uh, just doing it really helped us to get started, I think. So what did it look like in the, in the early days? Like y you, you start talking to customers, I'm guessing that's a really big part of it. Of yeah, you mentioned Global Forest Watch. Like, for example, what come out of those conversations about? So, Global Forest Watch is this like pretty amazing map and data set of a lot of the deforestation that's happening, yeah. and just a lot of like a catalog of forests uh, globally around uh, around the world. So, what I'm I'm curious to understand a little bit, like how what were the first steps? What did it look like? Um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, like that's. I think Global Forest Watch is instrumental for a lot of companies or a lot of yeah. things that we're doing now. So I think it was already huge then, but we were trying to understand like, because it was already public, but why, what else can we build next to it on top of that that's commercially viable? And I think we learned from talking with NGOs or talking with forest industry, a bank, like what, what is, what, what would you, where would you pay a premium for to have better, even more detailed insight? And I think that was the outcome of most of those conversations. Like Global Forest Watch works really well at scale, mm. but it's sometimes not accurate enough on a plot level or on a tree level. So it's, and I think that makes it hard for some companies to really act upon it. And I think that's, that's the step where we immediately thought like, okay, that's where high resolution can play a role, which is more expensive, but these are commercial companies with budget. So how can we let them pay for that extra insight? Like, and wh what is the Delta as well, right? Like, it, do you want to know all trees or is it more important that you are more accurate if it's deforestation that it happens? Is the precision or recall important? So those small details do matter for some stakeholders. Mm. And I think we found those stakeholders early on. We had a lot of conversations also with Airbus that, w that it was 
building such a platform themselves as well. So just learning and being adaptable in terms of what is needed. And I think, like, I think we got bullish more on the, on the commercial data, the higher resolution, because we said like that, then it's more actionable. Then you have a higher accuracy of the change really happening. Obviously, like if a large part of a forest disappears, you will see it on global forest watch, but what you actually want is if there's one or three trees move or more selective logging, if that's happening, then, then you can already act before the large plot disappears. So I think that's was the angle that we're trying to solve early on. I think we got more bullish on high resolution, got into what you, else you could do in terms of tree species, tree health. And I think that's not very different from how what we're building now and how we position ourselves, I think, as Overstory now. Uh, it evolved a lot in terms of type of customers, mm -hmm. product, even machine learning models. But I think that part really, that premium, trying to deliver high accuracy at scale. I think that's still, I think that's still, uh, you know, as well, that's still where our customers are really happy with as well. And so how do you, how do we end up on utilities? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I want to explain like what utilities are mostly because when I joined, I had no idea what utilities are. So it's like companies who basically do the transportation of electricity between the place it's, Created, it's just like all the power lines that we see, the companies who operate all the power lines. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the biggest focus of what Overstory is doing today. How did we get to that focus? Yeah, also a long journey and a lot of learnings in between, I guess. So I think it took two years to really start, really to focus yeah. on that. And I think the funny thing is like, for us here in the Netherlands, we almost have no, we only have large trans transmission lines above ground, but all the distribution lines so the, the smaller lower voltage lines are underground so it's not as common for us dutch people to think about power lines and vegetation in general but i think over that first two years of overstory um we just try to i think most important then is learning right like what what i mean like people always think you have product market fit early but it takes a while to get there and i think it was a lot of experimentation, trying new type of customers, learning from customers. And at a certain point, we just got a strong pull from these electric utilities and their problems. And the more we learned about it, that they're causing massive fires in California back then and also here in Southern mm -hmm. Europe, the more we felt, oh, the tech that we actually already have would be super valuable for them and they're willing to pay a premium for it. And I think especially that large part that they are willing to pay for it and act on it was really important because there's a lot of other markets like uh, carbon offset markets, forest monitoring, but that's not the sweet spot for the very high resolution satellite images because it's still quite costly to acquire 30 centimeter, 50 centimeter uh, satellite imagery. And I think what we learned about these utilities is they're, they're flying helicopters or drones every day. Mm. So 30 centimeter, 50 centimeter resolution is relatively cost effective for them. And I think that's, sort of a moment where we thought, okay, this is a market where you can grow fast, where the budgets are already there and where there's a real problem. And it sounds like we, we got that moment in yeah. one go, but it was, I think just over those two years, more data, more data, experimentation and trying. But I think once we decided to focus on that, it became every new customer we onboarded, it became more clear that this is, this is just, this is product market fit because right. you just get a strong pool. Yeah, this is an interesting, part about like it's not just the tech but it's more on the business model where the on the higher res um, imagery be it spatially or temporally 
um, you can get a lot more insight, but it costs a lot more, especially given that a lot of programs that are at a lower resolution spatially temporally like copernicus like landsat are free yeah so the cost of data is is zero it's just the compute that you're going to do on top of it and so there's a huge step in cost if you want to go to high res so like finding that business where there is a lot of that spending is going to be trickier yeah yeah absolutely i do think like because if you are only using public data then you're you're even more competing on cost because then the difference between you and another provider is mm -hmm. the cost you put on top, like the margin is just what you put on top of it. So I right. think that's where we wanted to stay a little bit away from. Like I, I know we spoke to other companies and they said like, wow, we're the, we're the best in processing Sentinel images for forest. And, but the truth is if you just used a little bit higher resolution satellite images, you don't need fancy algorithms. You do you can get higher accuracy than they get because you just have more in your image there's some there's a little bit of gray area for obvious, obviously but i think like it's hard to to create really something defensible on medium resolution satellite imagery you just need to roll out that skill and do it very well i think right uh where i think for for more high resolution data you can and you can do that with medium resolution as well but how do you combine different data sets what do you do on top of it? The post-processing, pre-processing, you can gain more there and get even more insights. So yeah, I think you're right. Like that delta in price should be worded to the customer. So yeah. it's really about actionability as well. Um, and there's a trade-off. So I think for a lot, I think for probably majority of customers, Sentinel data would be good enough to build something actionable. But I think for our customer segment, that does just doesn't work because if you miss one single tree or four trees, those are often the trees that grow into the line or fall in the line and cause a fire, right? So for them, it's really about very detailed, but at yeah. the same time at scale. Mm. Yeah, one of the things I, I, I find, one of the things I like at Overstory is the fact that the, the data and the tech doesn't make it into the sales pitch that much at the end yeah. like the customer doesn't care no. <laughs> about that and i think it's one of the things that i find interesting about like we're talking about okay yeah high res is better because blah 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 yeah. or low res is better because xyz and things like that but then when we get to the conversation about um like one example is you go to the to the website there's no mention of um 50 centimeter or whatever it's not yeah. about that it's about the um, like solving the customer's problem and it's the thing where a lot of like in the earth observation industry that's still not figured out everywhere where we still have this like oh the data is going to solve all the problem mm. better data i guess equals better <laughs> problem solving but one of the things that Overstories like putting a lot in is is building a product as well on top of the layer. We're yeah. not selling directly the the data. We're we're selling a product on that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what the process was like for that? About it's it's not about how fancy our data is. It's how we can solve people's problems. Yeah, and I think that I mean that also evolved over time. I think the tech got removed more and more over yeah. the years as well. And like if we can use Sentinel to solve the same problem, we would 100% do it. I'm not married to yeah, high yeah, resolution yeah, yeah. or Sentinel. So I, you're totally right. Like it's about, 
it's and, and I think that relates to the description that I gave. Like I think why Overstory was founded is not because we want to use satellite images or we think we can build fancy machine learning models. We want to solve a problem and that's the climate problem. So that yeah. that really helps I think in that sense to prioritize what to sell and how to sell it because it's it's a, a real problem that you're trying to solve climate in general i don't think we so will solve climate as a company but we can contribute to to the solution and then you think about how like what are the real problems of our customers and what's needed to get there and obviously like at some point you need to make decisions in what kind of satellite images do work for our type of customers and i think for for our for our current focus uh, customer segment it became clear very early that you need the high resolution. Yeah, we tried lower as well, but I think it was very clear that that you you missed too much, and I think that is so important for for this customer segment. So yeah, I think just I think we have a team that really listens well to the customer, trying to understand the real problem. Sometimes the customer doesn't know, right? So you need to guide them as well. And there are customers that talk about, okay, do I need stereo images? Try stereo. Do I need thirty centimeters? And we help them. Like I think I think that's what customers also like about working with us is that we give them the honest honest answer right like it's they do, sometimes they don't need 30 centimeters they need mm. 50 and we just say that to them like although maybe it, it's more expensive or less expensive i think that's that's how you build relationship with your customers and solve problems together because in the end i think especially in b2b enterprise you need to do it with the customers just especially in, in climate it's not just another software tool right it's a partnership it's a it's something that needs to evolve over time. They need to change how they work. They need to change how they use data. So there's lots of elements in there that's less related to the satellite images, but which is probably even more important than the tech behind it. But the tech is crucial to get right to build that trust with the customer yeah. as well. Yeah, everything is built on top of that. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, how, like, the... How did how do you move to like then bringing like using the data to solve the customer's problem without giving them you know a, a raster layer that <laughs> maybe one of the GIS person in the team knows but the the people we talk to are people who manage the vegetation for those utility companies yeah um, they might not be familiar with all of that they, we have information that can be useful to them how do you bridge that gap between okay we've got we, we can see that, you know, in the images, the data is there, or we can, we can create layers where it's there, but they maybe don't care about that. How do you bridge that gap? Yeah. Also a lot of learning, I think that we did in the last few years. And I think we have the right team to, to do that. I think also doing that step-by-step, step, I think what we did well is not building a broad product from scratch that we think will work. I think we really started from, from, from scratch and gradually add layers on top of it. And I think that's super important, continuously trying to listen. And I think that's where you need that relationship with the customers one. It's why it's a partnership. Like they need to be able to share what they really need and how they use the product or mm. what's missing or what not. Uh, so really step by step, um, because like I think first, maybe first three customers, like not in the non-utility space, it was roster layers or factor layers that we were sharing. but. Pretty soon you will see like, oh, that's, this is not actionable for them, right? Like it needs to go through different departments before that person actually can solve his problem, which is 
maybe just uh, just a quick summary of the different land uses. I don't know. It, it can be anything, but I think trying to always to get closer to the real problem. I think that's what we're continuously trying to do and mm. what we did over the years very well. And um, I think also when Fiona joined our chief product officer, that was also an important moment that we focused more on that product part itself and really building a strong thesis around what a product is. And mm. I think that helped also to make those steps to get where we are now, where it's really standalone fleshed out product, where we add new features over time. But we know that new features will help, but we are very careful in just releasing it for one customer. It needs to be, needs to be well understood what the problem is we're solving for multiple customers. Yeah, one of the things I, I thought was interesting is that there was a even like a designer in very early on yeah. in the project, uh, which is not the thing that you hear a lot about data science and, and bringing impact with data. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, no, I think that's that's exactly, I think, what was a huge influence from Fiona to, to do that early. Like, she knew that that's not her skill, but she knew it would be super important for Overstory. And I think when people think about designer, it's only about what color the button gets. But I think our designer is really a product designer, right? like really understanding what is the problem the customer tries to solve and, and what tools do this he or she need to get there. And I think that's what what um, Matthias, our first product designer, really does well. And that's where we selected him on as well, like understanding the problem. That's, that's the, it was his most important uh, part of his job early on, like not necessarily designing things, but listening, understanding the problem, mm -hmm. and then design something for them to interact with uh, and make it easier over time and make sure that they can solve their problems. And I think that was a really good decision, I would say, like at that moment. So that's almost two years ago that when we decided, I think he joined one and a half years ago, but that moment to decide to build our own product on top of it, um, I think without it, we wouldn't have been where we are now because it is just not as actionable and as valuable for our customer. And I think that's where that vertical focus, downstream focus really helps as well, because you cannot do that for 10 different types of customers as well. Yeah. How do you decide to focus? Because there's this um, balance between like, if you focus, that means you can get better and maybe the best at one uh, vertical, but then that means that maybe you're missing out on, on the other ones. When did you feel comfortable about like, okay, this is where we go and we would decide to focus on that? Because as you said, then you start building a product, you start building on the data teams as well to optimize for that vertical compared to, to all the other ones. Like, how do you think about like focusing versus diversifying and, and which way to go? Yeah, it's fair. It's fair. Honest answer is very tricky, but I think it's a, uh, should be like, I think it's one of my core tasks as CEO is to right. keep everyone focused because it's very easy, especially in what we do to get d distracted sounds too negative, but to be pulled in a different direction because there's a huge customer coming along that mm. waves with their wallet and can pay a lot of money. But like, I think always keeping in mind, like what's the end game, where do we want to go to in the end with the company? and have a, a path towards that. I think that helps me at least to, uh, to say no to those type of customers and say, okay, but that's not the path to long-term success, but it's difficult. Like we, I mean, it's some, we, we still get a lot of inbound from different markets that look very attractive, but I think 
people always say you don't know you don't know really what product market fit is until you have it and i think that's what we've really experienced with electric utilities like the the pool is so strong um why they buy it how fast they can buy even for a slow moving industry i think that's very telling for mm. how how, re how how clearly they need our product and i think that helps me at least to focus for now but i i, I mean we know that we want to go broader at some point but it's a thin line we shouldn't do it too early and i think now that we so show such strength in this market we should even double down on that focus right, right. but it's it's tempting it's it's, yeah. it's difficult and we've made mistakes in the past for sure as well and um i think now like once you have that in mind it's easier to to stay focused because we now we see the benefits of that focus of the last year or two years i think yeah and so it it, it kind of as a fee acts as a feedback loop where yeah i think see. so i think so yeah right. uh, definitely i think but it's always that's always in hindsight right like so <laughs> that's easy to say now yeah. that oh that was good to focus but um at on the moment itself and that's why i say that's why like it's still a little bit data science is still a little bit of art you you don't have all the data points to decide to go after that market or maybe another market at that point in hindsight it's very easy to say well was a good decision of course you try to collect more data but in the end it's also a little bit gut feeling experience i guess to see where which direction you want to go but uh, also not being af afraid to make mistakes i think is also super important but then when you realize it's a mistake then do something about it i think that helps us as well um in terms of the focus like being able to pivot to change to yeah like if right. a market if a customer segment is is looked very attractive and they still paid a lot of money but it is not worth it long term it's fine to say at a certain point okay let's maybe stop this contract and uh, refocus on something else one of the things i find quite interesting with uh like i've seen i think throughout like mm, all of the professional career i've had i mean it's not that long yet but <laughs> sounds very old now <laughs> yeah <laughs> no but i mean like i've worked at a few companies now and uh one of the recurring theme is that it's not you're not serving millions of customers like a like a SaaS software as a service company might you have a handful maybe of customers and they're all really big contracts do you think that can change or like is it because the industry of earth observation is um, and, and earth observation related analytics is still really early on where we a lot of these companies are getting started or do you think it's kind of the nature of it where we're going to stay with you know maybe a, a handful like a hundred maybe a thousand customers but we're never going to have millions and, and when i say we i mean like the industry like similar companies yeah, good question. I think for us, it came a bit more natural because we felt very comfortable in large enterprise space for multiple reasons. But I think that's that was a deliberate choice also because the climate impact and I think individuals can have a huge impact, but then you need to reach tens of millions. And I think what we realized early is that large enterprises, for better or worse, have a lot to say about how we use land, how we mm. treat our forests. So I think that for us was sort of why we realized, okay, it's a tough market because enterprise sales is not always fun, but that's where we feel we can have the biggest impact. I'm not sure if it is that for the earth observation industry in broad. I mean, everything you said make a lot of sense. I think 
you get started with those first contracts, which are often large enterprises. There's a lot of grants being given away as well that are right. mostly fueled by large enterprise. So in that sense, it makes sense. But there's there's probably a lot of consumer apps that are using Earth observation in some sense yeah. right? like that we're not even aware of. And I, that's what I like about the right. industry as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think maybe the, the best example is, is just like the weather app on your phone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we take it for granted. It's yeah. just an app. And uh, that's how it, I think that shows that it's a successful product, I guess. Or, right, yeah. A uh, piece of software. Do you, do you imagine getting to a point like that where you'd plug into more consumer facing? Uh... I mean, we have thought about it a little bit in the beginning as well. Like there's so many people that care about trees and that want to tag trees or yeah. even label trees for us, right? Like then you have millions of people that can do the labeling for you on the ground. So we've played a little bit around with that thought. I mean, it's, it's just so totally different compared to yeah. how we are operating now um but i would never say no i would say like yeah. it's it's in the end like i think what we're building climate is also about people and the consumer in the end so there there, there might be a hook somewhere it's hard to envision with the tech we have now how that it would scale but I, I i think building something that would be public with the data we already have and that can only happen once we reach scale yeah that's something that i would see happen in the near future, yeah. But then we need to reach skill first and then make some part of the data publicly available. I mean, that would be cool, I think. Right, yeah, and then back to not focusing as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly, so now I'm getting distracted myself, but uh, <laughs> I mean, you can play with the thoughts, but not yeah, 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 yeah. No, but I mean, like, that's, that's part yeah. of the reason, like, I want to have these conversations is, like, picking people's brains about, like, oh, what do you think about this? And I think it's pretty fun or like interesting to make predictions about like, oh, what do I think is going to happen in the next five or 10 years? And then come back in five years and be <laughs> like, well, we were kind of wrong. Um, but yeah. I think it's still an interesting uh, experiment. And I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's part of your job a lot to think about where, where are we heading? Where do we steer the boat? Which direction do we go on? So for me, it's just a fun exercise for you. It's kind of like the nine to five. Yeah, yeah, I, I liked what someone else said uh, yesterday. I don't know, I read it somewhere, I think. Like, as a startup, you often look ahead as far as the company has been alive. So if it's a two weeks old startup, you look two weeks ahead because that's when you need to execute. And now we're four years old. Probably you need to look four years ahead. Right. Because plan for that because the team is also bigger. So you need to make more decisions for the long term. So yeah, it, I... I intentionally leave some of the things for the future open because yeah uh like there's a lot of things that i'm unsure about but i i'm confident that we can get to a place where we can map a lot parts large parts of our planet especially the vegetation make that actionable for different stakeholders how we get there i don't have the answer but i think that's the goal of overstory like mapping more making it a bit more predictive in terms of what is changing with vegetation how we have an impact on vegetation as humans and vice versa and making that data available to different decision makers. I think in five years for sure, we'll, we'll have different type of customers and there might be different type of products as well. Um, but how that exactly looks like, I don't know as well, but, um, I think it's becoming more and more clear that we need more data to improve the decision-making around climate, vegetation, how we live in harmony with, with, with nature as well. And I think that's, the, 
I'm quite confident that Overstory can play a huge role in there, but there's a long, long road ahead with a lot of uncertainties. But that's also part of the fun as well, I guess, of being in an early stage startup. Like there's so many things that we don't know that we will figure out along yeah. the way. Yeah, back to what you were saying when you started, you didn't know a lot of things, so yeah. Yeah, I think you, yeah, probably for the better. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah do, do you have do you have examples of, of things that went wrong of like failures or things like that that you feel like sharing i think the w- reason i ask is is just because like people like it's very easy to see people who you know have been doing this you said four years people have been doing companies for for, for much more than that yeah. and to see wow like it's amazing what happened things like that but things go wrong sometimes uh so yeah, is there something where you, you'd feel comfortable sharing uh, or something that comes to mind? Yeah, I don't think uh, there's plenty of things that go <laughs> wrong, but probably I in my mind, I don't classify it as wrong. It's a learning moment. Right. But, but I think like there's there were things, thin lines, especially in the early years that we went for to a customer in, in Finland, actually, where we were running out of money. It was the last chance that they <laughs> to get some money. Um, from that uh, customer, we had to stay in a hostel, which was horrible. Someone was snoring. I couldn't sleep all night the day before the big pitch. But like that was such like it could have gone either way. But we won the customer, and that's why we continued with the company. But if we didn't get that contract, then it was an obvious mistake, right? So it's like yeah. I think people always say, "Oh, you need to be a little bit lucky to be successful," but you also create your own luck, right? I think as an entrepreneur, you create look moments and sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't but as long as the majority of the those look moments work out well i think that's how you grow as a company but yeah it's plenty of mistakes different types of customers probably that were more of a distraction than mm. than of added value i think that those are pl- plenty of those and i mean there's so so much so many things that we did wrong in hindsight and but it also is like it shows that you can learn and adapt. And yeah. that's also an important part of failure. I don't like the word of failure, but I, yeah, right, of right, making right. mistakes, yeah, I guess. Right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, it seems like what you're saying is, is more about like what you do from that. Like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Making sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. And maybe right. it happens again. Then you really make sure that <laughs> yeah. it doesn't happen again. But Got it. Uh, learn something from it. Yeah. Um, there will be a lot of mistakes. Oh, yeah. Before that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you guys started bootstrapped at first, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, when we started the company, it was never, never the idea to take outside money. I think we, we made it, and that's why the enterprise play made more sense. We thought, like, we need a couple of customers uh, to make this work. And that's where the Finland story comes from as well. Like, that was a close call. Um, but yeah, I think that's also how you learn, like, getting paying customers is important always and there's also tin balance there like it can be a distraction so not all money is good but uh, right that really helped in how we look at how we built the company trying to be capital efficient making sure that there's someone is paying for what we're building as well things like that so yeah that was going to be one of my questions like you mentioned you had an in mind to raise capital um now we are what happened? <laughs> I well, think at a certain moment we realized this, that we could get a have a bigger impact when we mm. do raise money, and I think we're we're being or yeah, I think we're still being very intentional about which money to take and what we want to achieve with that uh, 
with that money as well. So type of investor is important for us. The goal of raising that money, just not just raising money because of raising money, but what is the milestone you hope to get faster because of that money? Or what is the extra thing you can do with, with outside capital? And I think at a certain point it became very clear. We did a Techstar accelerator in Lisbon and mm. that was the first outside money. It was a small amount, but I think that's when we realized, okay, we can get to bigger impact faster if we take this route. And again, that it all ties up in why we started the company. Like if that's why you're doing it, like if, if that, then it's an easy, at least it felt like an easy decision. Now you have people that want to have 100% control of their company and build it how they want. I think what we wanted is building a company that have a huge impact. And I think that is where the VC money at a certain point really fit in well. And I still think it does now in the route that we're taking. How do you ensure that you stay on on track with the mission? Because when you raise money, you you give back some of the control on on the company that you have, compared to if it were completely bootstrapped and you own everything. Yeah. How did you think about that um, trade off in a way? Yeah, I think picking the choosing the investors is important in that sense, like making sure that they are like I think our, all of our early investors were climate investors or impact investors as well. So that that can help, but I don't think that's the real answer. I think you need to trust each other. So building a relationship with investors is important. Um, it takes a while before you give out full control of your company, of course. So, uh, But being intentional on who you bring on board and being transparent with them as well on what you're trying to achieve. Like I think if you say that this is our why we're building it, then they can decide if they go, they stand behind that, or if they want you to build a massive company in another sector, because that's very, very possible with the team that we have, obviously, like it doesn't have to be climate, it can be right. oil and gas monitoring as well. And you can make a lot of more money short term probably, but um, like being transparent with your investors before they invest. And of course, after they invest as right. well, but I, I think that helps, but also always being critical, I think listening to people in the team because some people really joined because of that mission the team so making sure that we make the right mistakes and also admit if you do make a mistake in terms of what direction and discuss that together and decide what the right direction is i think it helps that we also have independent board members uh, that are also climate driven so you, you can balance it a little bit but uh, yeah be very cautious in terms of who you pick who you get money from is probably the biggest step that you can take. Is that something that you thought about when, when making the board, like making sure that the people here keep like keep the company on track yeah. as well on the mission? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's their main, one of their main tasks, at least to like to zone out, step, step outside of the, well, they are outside of the company, but making sure that we achieve what we want to achieve and especially these like these early stages it's hard to measure right? it's hard to for us to say like, okay we prevented 10 forest fires so you're looking for leading indicators maybe like what did you prevent is it an outage in a high fire prone area or things like that and i think that's where the board also helps to challenge us is it are those the customers really that helped to achieve your mission and i think that's what i really like about our board is that they are also thinking in that way from a data perspective, from a story perspective. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not always super clear and, and easy, but um, 
yeah ha- just having those conversations yeah or, or even like inside the company i, I yeah. enjoy that as well it's where you learn as well and trying to be vulnerable we also don't know everything and i think that helps as well um are you ever um concerned that we might like that that a company like overstory um who has good intentions on the climate could still end up doing like making things worse where the intentions are still well founded but the the end result might not go well or or that uh, so an example of that um is you know other company coming in um in an attempt of, of more like greenwashing say like in the netherlands shell is a really big company um who's a big oil and gas company is like oh we're gonna try to do something with this climate vegetation monitoring company um but it's kind of putting a band-aid on i'm, I'm on purpose taking a, a very obvious example um and, and maybe working with shell actually would make things better i'm just saying like is that something that that is on your mind and and how are you thinking about that as well as the company grows as the impact of the company is also bigger there's more money involved how yeah. do you think about that no i think that's an active topic that we discuss when it happens or when it pops up and i think one of our active choices was not to work with shell for example we got a lot of requests from from the shells, BPs, etc., as well. Not only as an investor, but also to track their reforestation efforts. Oh, I, think, I actually took that example. Yeah, that was a real it's use a real example. <laughs> and I think yeah, maybe we discussed it before you joined. Yeah, maybe. Okay. But um, like we, because we don't know if the intentions are really well intended on their side, we said like that's not what we right. want to do. There's just so much things that they've done in the past that it's not even gray anymore right like it's pretty clear that it will be greenwashing so that's what what we then also tell them like that's not what we want to do uh so i think oil and gas is a is a no-go for us then there is a lot there's a gray area as well right you have monoculture agriculture how can you help that so there's like so yeah this is definitely something that keeps us well it helps us to keep keep thinking critically about how how we can solve a real challenge because you can also argue like electric utilities not all of them are climate focused some have yeah. a lot of especially in the US exactly so i think but i think in, in that side and there there's probably also a gray area but i think that's like even if the cfo of a of an electric utility doesn't believe in climate change he still wants to buy our product to prevent forest fires so i think it's a very easy that's an easy market where we can just have a very clear impact uh, on changing on changing the status quo of how they do vegetation management but there's yeah like there's a, a, a gray area as well and i think some are just already a clear no i think we try to to make sure that it's that our shareholders know that we don't want to do that we want to make that clear in our um in our statuten from our company so the the rules of our company that we don't do those kind of things so there are things you can do. You can never 100% prevent yeah. it, but I think it all ends up with the people, right? Like the people that are in the company, because if everyone in the company says, well, then we leave if we start working with company X, it's a strong statement. So it's the people that work at the company, the management, the investors, the board members, as long as everyone is aligned and there's a gray area where we need to debate and decide, 
but as long as we can keep that dialogue open i think we'll be in a good position so it, it's not about creating um like a, a clear rule or a, a clear like stopgap but it's building along the ways making sure everybody's on the same page um, um and so you start building that in the culture of the company as well yeah and uh, i mean like there are clear no's and there are there are grit and there are some, right yeah yeah so, yeah you need both of them and um but what i mean is there's no there's not a rule that says we won't ever work with shell ever like that that's what i mean by it's not outspoken but i would say it's a unwritten rule yeah, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. For the management. right yeah, yeah. Because it's, but but it's because of like all those other things that have been put in place, where the people working in the company, the board, all, like even on the investors, like it it just wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't align with everything that's done, and it would, like, because of everything you've built in place, it might end up being more detrimental, even if it's a big lump of money. Yeah. 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 I think. Yeah. Like it's it, it's an easy no for me if like if right. well, they, yeah. <laughs> I regularly get an email from one of the big oil companies so it's an easy no to just like if you're confident that that's the right decision I think it's an it's an easy like yeah. it's a very easy no but like there there's gray areas and I think right. that's where that's you need more of those yeah. conversations but uh, yeah I I think that's it, it, again ties up with why we started the company I I would rather then stop the company then have shell as our biggest customer i just right cannot, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I cannot sell that to myself or to my daughter so it's a it's an yeah, easy decision for right. me actually yeah i see um i want to go a little bit over what it's been like for you personally to to like as the company grows to evolve through the company as well um so very beginning you mentioned you're a, a data scientist at, at heart um how do you how do you describe the work you do now like what's your what's your role right now as as the ceo what does the ceo do what does the <laughs> ceo of overstory yeah. do yeah and it evolves a lot in the last few years like mm -hmm. from two people to five people to now 31 people i think like it evolves a lot uh, and that's i guess what i also like about the role that you need to learn a lot of things on the job and talk with a lot of different stakeholders within the company, outside the company. But I think my main tasks are not running out of money, keeping building <laughs> the best team out there as well and making sure we we achieve our mission, long-term mission and how we get there. So have a clear path to, to get there, although it changes over time. But I think those are really important for, for the success of Overstory and where I can help keep people focused on what we do as well. And it sounds really easy now, but it's different, different things in motion, of course, every day, like sometimes it's more focused on one on the other, but I think that's the core, core thing I, I do. And also helping my direct reports to make sure that they can execute on, on what's best for their teams. And how is so that? A lot of, lot of talking. Like yeah. if you told me, well, even if you tell my friends from 10 years ago that I like, I'm, I'm in meetings probably back to back every day, 30 minute meetings with investors, with shareholders or with potential customers. And the funny thing is that I really enjoy that nowadays, but I wouldn't have believed that 10 years ago, like, oh, you're speaking with 10 utilities on one day. Do you really enjoy that? Well, now now I really do because, because I really like what I'm doing and I know why we're doing it. So it's a very easy, like for an introvert person as me, that's actually a data scientist by heart. It's very easy to do my work on a daily basis and enjoy it because I know why we're doing it. And 
get a lot of joy of doing that, learning new stuff, talking with a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's it's very different, but uh, even than three years ago, probably. But that's part of the fun. And how has that? Because because yeah, you mentioned it. It's it's kind of happened quite quickly. Like we're talking span of a couple two three years. Um, yeah, how has that been as well? Because it kind of slowly happened. Like what I mean by that is every day it changes a little bit, um, but it's not a drastic thing from you're coding yeah. uh, six hours a day to you're you're doing meetings all day. Um, how has that transition been for you? Uh, yeah, I think it's slow, but at a certain point you realize, okay, now you need to make a hard decision or a clear decision that you're not coding because you have other things that are more important on a day. And that's, a, I think that's not only, if, I think for technical CEOs or technical founders, a difficult moment because you really need to transition and switch, right? Like, oh, now you're a, a, a leader or a, a people manager, or it can be different types of things. But I think that decision and making that decision is often a, a big hurdle for people because you don't want to let go on, of things that you're actually good at uh, in, or what you already know. So I think it, it happened, happened gradually, but I think at a certain point, it was clear like, okay, now I need to just need to focus on my other tasks because that has a bigger impact on the company. And I think then, again, if you, re in hindsight, it's so easy, but if you if you think about it on that, it's an easy decision at a certain point, probably it was already too late, but I think just trying to think of what is the biggest impact you can have on the company uh, helps it. But yeah, sometimes you miss the coding, but uh, I, yeah, I just haven't written any Python, I think in two years now, no. <laughs> I was gonna ask about that, do you miss it? Sometimes, like I, if, I, if I see what you're all presenting at the weekly or if I join some of these sessions, I'm like, oh, this is so cool, like what you can do with, with just coding and how complex things you can do with machine learning with just by bringing together a group of people that are really good at what they do. I think that's being part of that. I think that that's what you miss sometimes, but I'm part of that, but it's just on a different level, I guess. So, right. Um, the coding itself, maybe less, I not necessarily miss it now, I would say. Right. Yeah. Because, like, I, I'm from what you're saying. I'm, I'm the way I interpret it is, like, when a lot of people really like coding because it's like problem solving. It's yeah. like, oh, you feel like you can run your code and you see it run on like ten thousand CPUs or <laughs> yeah. something, and like, you're, oh my god! But you've found that in in doing something else. Yeah. That is is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why I described it as still as a data scientist because it's right. Right. It's still, maybe it's more the problem solving that part that I enjoy of what I'm doing now, but it's on a very different, on a very different problems, I guess. But that's the f fun part about doing my job is you're continuously, like in a startup, you will have many challenges along the way. And how do you deal with that? How you get out of those challenges stronger? I think that's the crux of being, being in or growing a startup. And it's not much different from from coding indeed it's just different right. language yeah, different yeah. Tools. <laughs> less notebooks all different type of notebooks <laughs> do, do you see still th some 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 things from like the more data science the more traditional data science work that you were doing that translate into the 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 more leadership role you have today maybe less that really fine detailed problem solving coding where on, on the, for example, the model fine tuning, etc. That's it's more strategical, strategic than really 
what I enjoyed as a data scientist at least is like really getting the most out of our models. That's probably why I, I liked Kaggle a lot. Like how can you squeeze more out of those models? Uh, yeah. But that's that's less now for sure. Like it's more high over challenges that you need to solve with a team. And I think that's like a good data scientist works in a team because you're never a generalist, you're a specialist and you need a data engineer or a full stack to really solve a data science problem as well. And I think that part is quite similar. Like how do you bring your own expertise to the table and solve it with a team? I think there's a lot of similarities there that I enjoy in my work today. And like, if I have time, I just speak in some of the, of the, of the GitHub commits and see what you're all doing so that I don't have to do it myself. But it's fun to see how, how it's still evolving so fast with the team for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing like that, that reflects in, in how you hire as well like looking for people who can take yeah. over yeah uh, that part and looking for skills can, can you talk a little bit about that like both on like what i'd like to touch on is is on the technical side but we also talked about the, the product side and um yeah I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about that like what, what has been your approach to like growing the team and thinking about who you bring on yeah, I think we've always approached it more like what are we in, in terms of what are we missing in the team and what can someone new complement to what we already have? So is it new right. type of experience or different type of experience or skills? And then not, not, not necessarily looking at tool set use or specific languages use, but right. really like what is the experience of that person? Can be tech or business and how can that contribute to to overstory to grow to the next phase. And I think really trying to yeah, to see how we can complement the team with each new hire, I think that helped us at least. I like that approach because then you're less focused on on resumes, on, on, on CVs. I think it's more about diversity in the broadest sense, right? It's about, especially because we're working in such a problem solving industry is like, you need a diverse mindset experience to mm. solve these tough challenges. and people with different experience will bring a different perspective. And I think that's super valuable. And uh, I think that's what you also said, I think is very noticeable in our team that it's very diverse in multiple yeah. dimensions. And uh, yeah, I think that's still how we grow the team where where we, we probably prefer specific experience over hard qualifications in terms of eight years of geopandas it's not even possible so that's yeah. good <laughs> um, but how do you um how what do you look for in people because like the uh you know like eight years of geopandas it's very easy to put that on a resume and be like oh wow okay um that's really cool that's useful but all a lot of other skills about like this person's really good at bringing a a team together or things like that. Yeah. How, how have you uh, approached that? Yeah, I think you get the most out of the conversations. And I think right. it's difficult because you need to decide to hire someone in three, maybe five conversations. Yeah. So I think that that's also where you shouldn't be too, be too afraid to make maybe a mistake or sometimes take a gamble on, because you, you really see something in a person. But I think the conversations and asking those questions that people can share about experience or how they deal deal dealt with specific situations and you can still practice it and and maybe it's it's not always like fully uncovering but i think that's how you feel how we try to filter uh or try to find the best best fit for overstory and it's 
yeah, it's never black and white. It's always very difficult, and it's a two-way interview as well, of course. Like, right. Right. I, I, what I really enjoy is trying to be honest about what our challenges are, what we, what we need help with, and what's not working and what is working, because that gives also the other person more of a view of how that person can contribute. And I think that's most important. Like, okay, if I join that company, how can I contribute to the growth of the team, of the company as mm -hmm. well? But I'm, I'm also going to be honest, like hiring is difficult. Like, especially yeah. in this market, people have a lot of choices and yeah. uh, there's a lot of remote jobs to pick from. So it is it is difficult, but yeah, trying to trying to get most out of those interviews with, with good conversations, I think that's super helpful. I think you, you touched on like the remote side as, as well. Um, there's been a this thing called a pandemic that came that kind of shifted the, the world a bit. Um, and so the coming out of that, like the Overstory is a remote first company. Can you talk a little bit about what the decision was on that side? Like how you might have thought about that? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's just... Uh when the pandemic started we were five five people in our office in we work in amsterdam so we were in person just five people but we had to grow the team so during the pandemic i think we grew the team to maybe 10 12 people in the first phase and mm -hmm. like it was going up and down with with uh, with the lockdowns but i think we i think and that's i think an important part of the of building company as well you need to adapt to the situation right like how do, like it is what it is. There is COVID. It's nothing we can do about it. But how can we still build a strong team in that situation? And I think we just realized, oh, this is actually working really well for us. We need to double down on certain aspects of the remote work. But I think this actually can scale for us as well, because we also got a lot of benefits from out from it. From I think on the tech side, but also on the business side, and doing more, way more meetings during a day instead of just visiting one customer in person, you could do eight during the day, but also like having more focused time as a, as a programmer really help, but you need to compensate it with those social moments. And in the beginning, it worked really well to have those moments during workday, but at a certain point, people were also tired of Zoom. So yeah, I think trying to adapt to those situations really helped us. It's still not easy. We haven't figured that everything out, but I think the benefits definitely outweigh the shortcomings of remote especially if you also look where we can hire now where our right. team is coming from and i think it's important to have those moments to meet in person as we did in february with the whole team here uh, but i do I, I strongly now do believe in remote work and i didn't before the pandemic for sure right so right it so it's uh, changed a lot yeah and back to that point about like adapting uh... yeah i mean like neither of the solutions is perfect what i what I think is even worse is not picking between the two. So that's why I think if you say like yeah. we're, we're hybrid always like, so then people need to be around Amsterdam and you say two days per week, you go to the, like, you don't really, I think what I don't like about that is that you don't make a decision. So now it's remote first. So people like large part of your work will be remote. So that is something you need to nail and adjust your way of working to. And then you can still meet in person. Right. Like a lot of people do, like you do a lot as well. And that's, that's good. But I, I don't think like, it should be hybrid first. I don't believe in that concept. It's, it should be one or the other. Right. Um, and then you can still meet. And I think that's what I like, like about saying remote first doesn't mean that you cannot ever meet someone from the team. You can actually meet five times per week if you want, but it's more of a, um, a decision from the person itself. I'd, I'd like to touch a little bit on like the current like economic situation 
which is like this whole post-COVID. Um, I don't know if it's like officially a recession yet, but we're basically heading towards that. Um, which basically means, especially for like young startups, there's going to be a lot of um, changing and, and, and adapting to that. Can you talk a little bit about like how you're thinking about that? Maybe like what's the impact on a company like Overstory for something like that? Sometimes it feels very distant about like, okay, cool. There's this thing that, first of all, we hear a lot about in the in the U.S., maybe a little bit less in, in, um, uh, in Europe. Um, well, I mean, there's also like the war going on in Ukraine. How does that affect a, a, a company like uh, Overstory? Yeah, I think in the end it affects all company in, in one way or the other. And I think for us, like it can have different impacts on the company, right? And I think how we look at it is what what are those potential potential impacts on Overstory? So how does it, it affects our ability to raise more money? I think that's a clear one. But also how does it af affect our ability to sell to our customers? Will they be hit by a potential recession or maybe the recession is already here or the hiring part? Like how does it impact access to talent? And I think trying to separate those a little bit and then prepare for that, I think is important in these times. And a lot of people don't like, this is how the economy works for better or worse. There are different ups and downs. And I think if you realize that, and I think this will happen, I think what is scary for a lot of companies and people is that there's a lot of uncertainty. How long will it take? No one can predict it. Like, or is it even a recession? Maybe not. Will it come later? But there will be a recession between now and the coming 20, 40 years. It's just a given, right? And I think if you put yourself in that mindset, you can also think about how, how can we get through this stronger, faster? Because I think the truth is also like a lot of strong companies are built during a recession, right? Like this a recession gives a lot of opportunity because companies will fail. There will be a lot of talent available. Talent there will things will be also be more cost efficient. So trying to prepare for that and grab that momentum to get out of it stronger is is really it's just one 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 a new challenge on our way. I would right, say like right, and it's yeah. it's a tough one. I'm not going to lie. Like it's. Yeah impacting, I think, fundraising most. But I think what we are like as Overstory, maybe as a company is lucky is that we have, we're selling to an industry that is a bit more recession, recession proof. So they, are st okay. they still need to buy our solution. Um, we have multi-year contracts. I think we're in a good position. Uh, but yeah, I think you, I also don't want to be naive, right? I think this is going to impact potentially a lot of companies and people and, and startups uh, as well. So trying to prepare for that and make sure we can get out of it stronger. I think Alexi uses this, uh, it's our VP of engineering. He uses this uh, metaphor, like even if you have a, a strong house with a strong foundation and a storm is coming, you still go inside, right? You cover up the, the windows and prepare for the storm, even though you're almost certain that you can go through it, but you need to prepare and go inside. And I think that's exactly the best thing to do now. And then the, the better you're prepared, the, the sooner you can open the windows and, and pick up the pace again. And I think that's, uh, important, but it's a lot, a lot of uncertainty and that's, it's part of the challenge. And I think we're really in a good position, but we, yeah, I think we're, we're just seeing what the market does, listening to the, the signals and trying to navigate that. I'd like to shift a little bit, um, focus on the, on the whole earth observation side. Um, one of the ways that I, I see overstory is, um, we're kind of like a chef 
who needs to who's making meals and we go to the supermarket and we shop for the best ingredients for whatever makes the best meal mm. um and so we go and we kind of see in the supermarket okay what is out there and maybe there's like a new tomato sauce that comes out and so we're like okay cool i'll take this one now um as compared to if if you're a, a data provider like let's say planet we talked about planet um they're kind of making the tomato sauce and so the meals that they're going to be able to make is going to be biased <laughs> towards what they what they create first of all do you see that the same way or you're... i think so i think so i'm getting hungry from this conversation <laughs> but, um i i think so yeah i mean you're more you're more limited by your own data in that sense indeed so and so from yes. that side what do you want to see from the supermarket like what is it that you know we are focused on the vegetation side from all the data providers that we get and and maybe what you're seeing from the trends of um companies like planet which is kind of on the new space side and then there's airbus which is not the new space side um what what would you would you like on the data provider side things to happen um Or what are you looking for, at least in what's happening right now? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of things happening in this space, uh, no pun intended. But uh, yeah, I think like I think Planet was such a clear disruptor. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many years ago, but like I think what I see that other new startups are are doing now is is trying to disrupt them again, right? It's moving really fast for such a traditional industry. Like, and I think it helps that it get launching your satellite is of course more cost efficient now but i think i think what we see is more more frequent updates higher temporal resolution but also higher spatial resolution is coming sooner than later and i think that is something we definitely want to use and i think uh, what we hear a lot in the market is okay but then it should come at a, a very attractive price but i think for us it would be even more interesting just to have high resolution at the same price or even a bit more expensive because We can ask that premium from our customers as well, uh, but that's coming. So I think I'm excited about that. I think more hyperspectral data is really interesting. If you look at vegetation, obviously, and tree species, tree health, I think what we can do with four, maybe six bands is already amazing, but more access to hyperspectral data at scale with a high enough resolution. I think that's where you can even dive deeper into really the species level, so on the genus level, or maybe different types of Uh, health issues with with the tree species with certain tree species as well. Maybe you can even detect what kind of bug is is um, is infecting the the tree. Yeah, I think the SAR the SAR data still. Well, you're you're more from that space, you know better than I. But it's still not as explored yet. So I think there will be a lot of new use cases coming out by just having more access to that data. So I'm also looking forward to to that. Obviously, like. Half of the time, the Earth is without sun, and then the, the other like the other quarter is probably without with clouds. So there's like huge opportunity to monitor more frequent, and especially if you look to towards more real time applications in terms of forest change or storm damage or forest fires. Even I think that's where there will be a lot of uh, wins. Um, yeah, I think for us it's just so exciting that there are so many providers that we can work with all of them. Like you mentioned, that we have so many 
ingredients to pick from in in the supermarket and we're not dependent on one and they all I, what I find interesting is that they're all slightly different, right? Like, okay, maybe they both have 50 centimeter multispectral resolution, but it's not the same 50 yeah. centimeter, right? And one has more higher free, free, frequent uh, revisit time and others have better resolution, I don't know. But um, yeah, it's just a very interesting to, time to be a downstream provider, I think. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's also good for us. I think for the long-term uh, health of the company. Are you concerned about companies like that tr starting to eat that cake of the ana analytics, the derived products as well, like not just selling data, but starting to start eating into directly going to the the, the vegetation side? Um, like you know, we're talking about vegetation monitoring, so let's go on that vertical. Is that is that a concern of yours? No, I mean, we always are looking out what, what, what's next for that market, but not, not a huge concern. It will happen. Like if there's money to be made, other companies will jump in. It's a good sign because it means like the market is big enough. So I think that's why agriculture is a huge market where I think the planets and other providers are already stepping in uh, to do more downstream. But like, if, I think for some, for I think what we actually see is more niche players or vertical players that really bring a product to the end consumer because that's like you, like we discussed earlier, that's where the actual value is, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't see these basically hardware companies doing that sooner. But I think in the end, there will be some consolidation. I don't think right. we can deny that. But it's not, I, wouldn't, I don't think it's a fear of us that that will happen soon, but uh, it will, will be good for the market if there's some consolidation. Right, yeah. Yeah, I guess one of the things I have in mind is is like Planet acquiring uh, Vandersats recently. Yeah. Um, is that also something that that you have in mind of of like being acquired by a company like Planet, for example? Yeah, what I like by that acquisition is that they also they they didn't bought a company that's only using their data, right? They actually right. extended their market by someone that's selling also to other or other products to other type of companies. So I think that was a smart move. I think for us wouldn't be the right move now because then you're dependent, although you can still buy from another provider, I think it will, will be different. And I think mm. as an independent party, you can do more of right. that grocery shopping. So I, I think that that is definitely, I think not high on our list to be acquired by a right. satellite imagery vendor. Yeah, you don't want to get locked into one tomato yeah. sauce provider. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly, exactly. That makes sense. Um, but do you see that down the line as in like, yeah, w what are the exit strategies for Overstory that like, again, back to how do you align the, the, the mission of the company wanting to have the biggest impact to when like you've raised VC money and that means there's an exit strategy probably in mind. How do you bring those two things together? Yeah, I think like if you look at the mission and what we still can do as a company, I think there's a long I always say like building a company is a, is a marathon, not a sprint. So there's a yeah. long, long road ahead. And I think there's so much more that we can do is that, that selling overstory is really one of the last things in my mind because we can just right, right. So do so more. So then like going public is the most logical option because right. then you can do even more of what you're planning to do yourself. And mm -hmm. I think there will be more consolidation maybe with other players than 
with a satellite imagery provider. So it can be in your niche mar niche market if you decide to stay there. I think vegetation is so broad that it doesn't make sense to uh, be acquired by a specific right, tree trimming right. company, of, of course. But uh, I think we we really in this for the long game. So I think how we can have to, right. if there's a partner do down the road that can strengthen our impact. Uh, of course, then I think we'll definitely consider that. I think for now, there's just so much more to do and to explore that we'll, we'll, we're playing the long game. On So let's let's uh, entertain that thought for a little bit more. Um, right now, a lot of the uh, space companies that went public recently like are kind of going down uh, in terms of stock value. Um, is that something that you think about or do you think like a company like Overstory, even though it depends on a lot of space infrastructure, is decorrelated from that or even like it's so far down the line that um, it doesn't really matter? Yeah, I think now it feels very correlated because that's our main input. But mm -hmm. I think long term Overstory doesn't only rely on satellite images per se, okay. I think. So I think that opens up another can of, right. of worms probably, but I think that's that's more how I envision the future of Overstory. Okay. Like we don't, we're not so dependent on images like, or not on satellite images alone long-term, I think. Now we are obviously because that's, that's really where you can have the biggest impact. Um, but I don't see us as much as correlated. And I, I think we really want to build a big business before we go public as well. Right, right, yeah. Uh, so timing is really important there as well. And yeah, of course the stocks go down, but I think Planet published quite good numbers for q1 the expectations were a bit different because of a, a large deal but yeah, yeah yeah it's still it's still going strong i think it's a, they also played a long game right i think yeah. having a quarter of of maybe lower expectations should be fine if you're if you're confident about the company that you're building and i think the people at planet are so it yeah. should be fine what are those other uh, dependencies i don't know i don't know you tell me like there's <laughs> Yeah, there's so many different types of sensors you can think of, right? And I think that makes it also challenging. But um, I think I always, I always have in the back of mind, like with satellites, you can do large areas, but you, if you can combine it with some micro data in the field, maybe a small sensor that you don't have to put in every meter, but just very sparsely because you have that macro data already. I think combining some micro with macro sensors can be very interesting but it only works if you're already doing it at scale as well so i think yeah, that's the, it's the uh, trade-off and uh yeah i think at the i think we're always open to experiment with new different sensors but it's right. uh like you mentioned it should, shouldn't also distract us too early but uh yeah if you look into especially if you look into the wildfire space that we're operating now is there's so many sensors on the ground already and we have a very different perspective I think those two can go together and that doesn't mean that we should use those sensors, but first you collaborate with a different type of, of vendor and then it, it evolves over time. But that's exciting to see how, how that evolves over the next decades probably, because right. even I think sensor fusion in satellite images like combining SAR with optical imagery doesn't happen as often yet. Yeah, and I think if we're thinking about that, like. I feel like sometimes we take things like Planet and Copernicus um, for granted. I'm sticking on these two because these are actually really recent. Yeah. I think Copernicus is 2016 and Planet is like a 10 or 12 year old company. 
So it's like crazy. the past decade, yeah. basically. Yeah, it's crazy. Like there's Landsat and Modus, which is like huge, but Landsat became open in 2008, which is like when it really started taking off. So we're we're talking about like 15 years, and and the whole industry is still super yeah. young, basically, where the commercial sector comes in. Um, so yeah, even on the, the the data, like what the supermarket's gonna look like in in yeah. 10 years is is pretty crazy. Yeah, it's hard to predict. Yeah. Yeah, so the, I think the low-hanging fruit is indeed more combining even more satellite-based sensors uh, over time as right. well. Do you see what what is currently the main challenge? Is it like on the technical side, or is it on the on the customer side? Like now that you have a little bit more that product market fit, and like the data is evolving a lot. Like I think most people who are listening to that like understand that. Um, but I'm curious to have your point of view, like, what do you see as the main challenge to, to face at the moment? Yeah, I think now that I think this is a very interesting moment because we have that product market fit and it's a little bit of a balance between both. Like we can't sell, can we onboard hundred new customers tomorrow? Probably not because then, then we're more limited by the tech, um, and vice versa. You can also make that statement, right? So we're trying to balance that growth that we can also deliver the quality on it because I think quality is really an integral part of what we deliver at Overstory. So making sure that we don't lose that is important to me and to the company. Uh, so I, I would say like it's a little bit of both at the moment, which is, I think, a good moment to scale mm. faster. But it's I think this is uh, an interesting period where we, we see that there's so much interest from the market. So how can we grab that in a healthy way so that we can also execute with the same quality as we've always done. I think that's that's a little bit the balance that we're now right. facing, which is, I think, a, a healthy balance because both are solvable, um, but you also don't want to over-engineer too much now and then the customers don't don't yeah. follow, right? And I think that yeah. balance is a little bit uh, what we're tr continuously balancing uh, at the moment. In, in, which, which sounds like a great problem to have, by the way. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and that that evolves as well, right? I think now now that problem is really clear. I think last yeah, even, yeah, yeah, yeah. right last yeah, few yeah. months, and it wasn't a year ago. So I think yeah, yeah, it's definitely a good problem to uh, to be in. How 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 are you thinking about that? Like about the growth of? I think when you hear a lot of founders talk, there is this thing that happens when you pass this like twenty to fifty percent uh, people. Sorry. When when you move from like you know everybody uh, personally, Max, <laughs> <and> right? <laughs> no. But also like you know what they're doing on a day to day mm. basis, and you kind of have a rough idea to like, oh, we hired this person. Do <laughs> they work here? Yeah. Um, how how do you think about that as well? Especially in a like a remote first environment yeah. where there's no coffee machine to to to, to go you know, have a chat too, oh. and you can bump into even the intern that comes and like, hey, I'm the CEO, by the <laughs> way, what do you do? Yeah. Is that something you think about? Uh, it sounds right that you say between 20 and 50 people because it's getting, it's getting harder and harder now yeah. to meet everyone on a very regular basis. Um, but yeah, I strongly believe that a company is built out of people, right? The people build the product, build build the business, build, acquire customers, deliver all new features. So um, that's really important to me as well. So I think trying to stay 
like I, I I don't need to know what everyone does on a daily yeah, basis, yeah. obviously. But I think it's important to to not because it's more difficult now. Just then, just look away. I think mm-hmm, that's the, mm-hmm. the wrong thing to do. I think it's trying to be more intentional and understanding what everyone is doing. I like how we we set up the weekly, and we need to see how that evolves. So at the end of the week, we all present what has been done, and we try to keep it short and concise. And we we did that already when we were with three people, I think. So it's it's evolved a lot over the yeah. last few years but i think that for me is a really interesting session where i also don't have to say anything so after a full day of meetings i well sometimes i say something obviously but i like i can listen to all the great work that everyone has been doing the mm-hmm. whole week and that's pretty exciting to me and i try to yeah try i, I would say i read a lot of the slack messages still in a very different sometimes very technical chan- channels as well so i try to keep up with everything that's happening but it's definitely getting more difficult and what i at least hope is that everyone knows that the door i guess the slack slack door is always open that if you want to talk that's actually what i enjoy as well right Um, but yeah we'll have to see i think even if you have a company of 100 people it's still those 100 people that are building the company right so uh, it's very important i think to know what is happening and who is joining your company so uh, that's why i still keep on pressing i want to meet every candidate at least for the final round because these are people that yeah, will help yeah. shape overstory for the future yeah. do you feel that you can still meet everyone within the team obviously within the tech team but yeah. is it changing because the team has grown a lot since you joined so yeah that's a good question um so yeah i, I joined like nearly a year ago now um and i feel like the team has doubled in that time um i think it's uh on the tech side yes because there's still a lot of overlap with the things that we do um but then there is like people who are uh, a bit more removed from what i directly do um but i think we like yeah i think like having things like these weekly meetings where you do see people and you get to hear like Oh, these people have been working. <laughs> oh, they, they actually do something here at the company. Yep. And then the other way around where you have to justify, maybe not justify is not the right term, but like explain, oh, this is the thing that I've been doing and this is how it relates to everything. I think it's a good exercise to, to, to kind of keep that cohesion about this is like a, a, a coherent thing and everything is linked together. Yeah. Um, like one of the changes I see is that at the beginning, like you wear like 10 hats and then it kind of slows down a little bit, like reduces, but you're still doing that and keeping that link between everybody and like, oh, my, my thing links to this other thing, which links to this other thing, which makes the product better at the end um, is, is, uh, yeah, I I still think we're, we're doing that. and for me, it's really interesting. Like one of the things I really like at, at Overstory is the fact that the tech isn't the, the center point. Like obviously it's really interesting, but even the, the, the remote sensing and the earth observation isn't like most people don't know about satellite imagery yeah. in the company, <laughs> which is uh, not in like the places I was at before, which is really interesting because it provides that other point of view about like, nobody cares about this like um and so it kind of forces i know for me at least forces me to think about okay 
what's the actual value of this uh, new feature or why is this data set exciting uh, for what we're doing? It, it's like challenging in that sense in a way that I think if we really want to have an impact with, with Earth observation, uh, which is a lot of things I care about. Like, I think this industry is like really interesting, but how do we move from like, we're a bunch of nerds who think this is interesting <laughs> to let's go talk to people who don't care about it and see it as a tool like you, you were talking about. Yeah. Um, and so I try to go talk to other people about like, what do you see? What's the value that you see in this thing that like nobody cares about? Like the, the satellite imagery. I find that really interesting to, to talk to people who um, with within the company or even outside yeah. who don't care about satellite imagery. Um, but I do wonder what, what happens when you reach like a uh, hundred people or uh, 200, because it doesn't stop there. I'm no, sure. no, that's true. Yeah, and I think the time zones make it more difficult. That I think, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of overlap between California and, and uh, yeah. Eastern Europe. So, um, but yeah, I, I like what you said indeed, like, I think also for the business people, it is interesting that you present like how, how you got to a certain solution, right? Like it's not as straightforward to implement something yeah, like yeah. you need to bring in different things, but explain that in an easy way that people can also understand it is in, important in that meeting. Otherwise it's hard to get, but I think that's, I think that's a crucial part of keep doing that. And now everyone can say something and probably that will, there will be less time per yeah. person. But yeah. I, I do think we need to, I think it's an important part of having those connections and meeting in person. I think that helps if you met someone once in person that has a, that's a huge difference yeah. than. Yeah, they're like, met. it's an actual yeah. person. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I feel quite strongly about that. Uh, I mean, like, this is why I try to do these recordings as much as I can in person, because there's something that happens when, first of all, like you see the gear and it's like, okay, this guy is serious <laughs> about this, but you're also not like, we're not, we're like, we have, we're focused on this thing. We're not answering an email uh, yeah. at, at the same time. Um, and I think there is something about being able to look at someone in the eye and be like, you know, have that conversation. Um, so I, I think we, there's, there's this thing that happens when people sit down at the same table. Uh, and there's also like the moment where for the podcast, when we, we stop recording or when the meeting ends and then you go grab a coffee, like there is that, there's a lot that happens as well uh, yeah. on that. So yeah, I'm, I'm very biased uh, <laughs> towards, towards trying to, um, have a lot of in-person as well. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, I like uh, rounding these conversations off by, by also asking the, the same question every time. I like asking people if they have um, book or, or podcast recommendations. So there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, first off, I think it, again, my, my goal is to try to like pick people's brains. Uh, <laughs> the podcast is Minds Behind Maps. There's like, I'm trying to understand the people. And I think what people read and what they're interested in reading or, or the podcast they listen to is, is quite interesting and telling. Um, and then it's because a lot of these are recommended through word of mouth. Um, there's not a, a book recommending algorithm like YouTube, for example. Um, it's a little bit the same for podcasts. So um, it, I'm not especially looking for anything that has to do with um, with anything that we've talked about. But just if there's books in general uh, that, yeah, you, you think are worth recommending or, or podcasts. Yeah, I think the honest question is I haven't read many books and listen to many podcasts in the last nine months with a small baby at home. So <laughs> fair enough. Fair. Right. But I think uh, one that I enjoyed was um, 
regeneration, ending the climate crisis in one generation. I think I got it right. Uh, because it has also a little bit of the, you know, you work in climate, like there's a lot of, if you see what's happening, it's, there's a lot of negativity. If you yeah. keep reading the news, it was very depressing news here in the Netherlands as well, that we're probably not going to make our target. So I like some of these climate books that also have a positive outlook of how we actually can get there with with the people that are actually on this planet. So I think that was a, is a really nice book that I would recommend uh, to read as well. But uh, yeah, I should read more, but uh, something is keeping me awake and it's not, it's not a podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I can't believe you didn't recommend Overstory. Yeah. I mean, I, the honest question is I haven't finished the book as well. So <laughs> <laughs> I read a large part of the book, but I have never finished it. Have you read it? No, I oh. haven't. Like, well, then you should. But it's the fun thing should. about like every time it's like, oh, I work in a company named Overstory. It's like, oh, like the book? Yeah, it happens a lot. Yeah, it's an. I, I like the book a lot, but you need to like how the, the stories are told. Right. Is that is like, is the company named after the book? Like, how did you decide on the name of the no, company? No, I mean well? uh, that's uh, that's another podcast probably how we decide <laughs> to to change our name because we previously we were called Twenty Three Dot AI, which mm -hmm. is probably the worst name you can pick. <laughs> um, and then we went on a journey. I think we were seven people back then and deciding on what the new name would be. And I think we all eventually like Overstory is a, is a strong name. It means like the, the tallest tree standing above the other canopies. So and it really matches with our top-down view, obviously. And I think uh, we decided to do that. And the book was already out, I think, but it's not necessarily named after the book. Okay, right. Yeah, it's it's not the best SEO choice. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, great. Well, Indra, thanks a lot for the time. Thanks for uh, the conversation. It was great. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on. And uh, and I, I joined the conversation as well. Happy that I could ask you also one question. But uh, see you on Monday. Well, it's the same. You know, the door is always open on Slack. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to this conversation with Indra. Before you go, I just wanted to give you a few final thoughts. I'm trying to do more and more of these conversations in person. They take a lot more time and a lot more preparation, but I ultimately think they lead to better conversation. I think there's something that happens when two people sit at a table and look at each other in the eye and actually have a conversation without any distractions or anything. And there's just microphones, the camera's somewhere else. We don't go through a computer interface. Um, to have that conversation. So I'm, I'm trying to do a lot more of those. If you want to hear a little bit more about that, I actually wrote a newsletter uh, a little while ago. I'm trying this out where I want to show a little bit more of the behind the scenes, how I'm thinking about this. So if that sounds interesting, you can head to mindsbehindmaps.com and you'll find a link to subscribe to the newsletter there. I, I won't send you any junk or anything and I don't really have a schedule for this. I'm just trying to share some thoughts from time to time. While you're there, the best thing you can do to help support the show is to leave a review. There's a section on the website. You can also do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify if you listen to the podcast there. And if you're on YouTube, let me know in the comments what you think about this conversation. These kinds of things actually help a lot for me to make a better case for the podcast whenever I want to share it. Um, whenever I want to get a guest, I can point them towards that to show that there's legitimate interest in these conversations and people find value. Thanks again a lot for listening. I hope I'll catch you next time. Cheers.